if you're new with us, we're in our last week of a four-week series on uh, faith and sexuality. We've been talking uh, about these things out of God's narrative. Uh, a lot of times, um, sometimes we don't quite get clearly what God's narrative is. And our goal in this is that we are putting together the foundation and building blocks, as I'll talk about today, for us to have further conversations on things that are applicable especially with sexuality in our culture. And so, as you see, today's sermon title is Seeing People Through Jesus' Eyes. Seeing People Through Jesus' Eyes. And I, I want to start with a story um, about me and my father-in-law. So, in 1977, I was a bartender, and Barbara, my wife, was a waitress, and we started going out. Uh, neither one of us at that point were uh, Christians. We weren't serving the Lord. And, um, but her dad was certainly a pastor. And uh, so uh, he would be pursuing his daughter. He would try to have conversations with her and keep in touch with her. And um, unbeknownst to him, Barb and I had uh, moved in together. We were living together. And um, Barb had, uh, at that point, uh, gone to uh, school, and I was at the house, and um, in those days, I would uh, spend time uh, getting high and sort of not having a real lot to do, because I was bartending at night or sometimes during the day. Well, lo and behold, her father had decided that he was going to give her a visit. He had the address of her new apartment, and uh, he figured he was going to surprise visit her. Well, he did get a surprise, because Barb was not there, but the person who answered the door was me. Now, of course, he had no idea that I was living with her. And when he looked at me, I was this guy with a big bush. I was probably a little looking a little dazed at that point and uh, probably dressed pretty sloppily. And uh, I could just, I, I, I sort of knew it was her, her father, but, you know, I had to ask, well, who are you? And, of course after his jaw got back up from dropping, seeing me, recognizing that, okay, I was living with his daughter, and who is this guy? Uh, he certainly is not someone who has the same worldview that I have. I can tell that right away. And um, he is someone that, in his mind, I'm assuming at that point, is living with my daughter. Um, but he recollected himself, and um, he told me that he was Barb's dad and that he was coming by to visit and to let her know that he came by to visit. But here's the thing. Rather than just going back uh, to his house and going, I can't believe my wife, my daughter is living with this guy. I mean, this is the worst thing in the world. Look, look at him. Look what he was like. Um, he decided that he was going to pursue me. And he began to invite me out to breakfast. And I would go out to breakfast with him. And during breakfast, he was putting together a pamphlet that explained the good news of the gospel, and it was being done in pictures. And so what he would do, uh, he would just say, hey, you're a man on the street. Um, here's this picture. Does it make sense to you? And it would be a picture of three hearts, one bad heart, one good heart, and one heart that needed to be redeemed. And then there was a man, another picture of a man in a circle, like a, uh, the circle that he couldn't get out of, and life became empty, and, you know, and so... He did this for a variety, a number of weeks, and all through that, did not judge me. 
finding out about me, encouraging me, accepting me. And in many ways, he was explaining the gospel to me without explaining the gospel to me at all. And um, I just remember how powerful that was in my life. And I didn't realize it until we were out in California and we were part of an organization. Uh, we, were in, we were into a lot of politics and radical politics at that time. So we were involved in an organization. I remember meeting with everybody who had all these ideas. And then just in this meeting, and it was, I now know it was of the spirit, I just said to everybody, is anybody here willing to die for what we're talking about? And they sort of looked at me like I was a madman. Like, what are you talking about? I said, well, there's one thing I know about Barb's dad. I've met with him a few times, and here's the thing I know about him. He is willing to die for what he believes in. And that was just so powerful. And it was an encounter that he was seeing me through the eyes of Jesus. And that's what I want to talk about today. But to get there, we need to look back a little bit at where we've come from and then move us into a place where we see Jesus. And then let's talk about what that really looks like. So that's what we're going to be doing today. And so let's go back now to where we've been, where we're now on our last week. And if you could put that, um, that up, that would be great, the uh, chart. I figured it's a good way for us to get an idea. What, we, what Josh and I have been talking about, of course, is creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. I mean, that's sort of the idea of what we've been talking through. And uh, if I were to say to you, you know, if I was uh, teaching a class, I'd say, okay, what did you learn about creation from us? What was the foundational principles? But I don't have time to do that, so I'll do it for you. Um, so very, very simply, one of the things that we learned, of, of course, is that God made everything in, and it had a design. It was beautiful. It was very good. Um, and out of that design uh, was humanity. And he made humanity both male and female. That's a principle, a creation principle design. Not only did he make a male and female, but he made the female as a partner and helpmate, uh, soulmate for Adam, which he called Eve. And when he made her to be that, that helpmate and partner, he brought her to him and he instituted marriage at that time. He literally, as a father, brought Eve to Adam and instituted marriage. And marriage was this wonderful expression of two people coming together in a one flesh union. And so what we learned is that there was a design for sexuality, uh, and that was sexuality was to be enjoyed in marriage. That was God's principle that was laid out there very clearly. So uh, these are the things about creation that uh, we took away from that, right? But then, as Josh explained in the first sermon, Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They believed the temptation of Satan. They wanted to become the God of their own lives. They didn't trust that God had in, in mind for them the things that, he, uh, that would make them as happy as they should be, that they wanted to be the God of their own lives. They wanted to be like God. What they did, they felt the temptation. In that falling, we know that their lives became radically different. They began to see themselves in nakedness and shame, uh, their identity, and everything about their life was now marred and twisted and shattered. They were separated from God because of this rebellion, and this curse led to then uh, uh, the, uh, the idea that sexuality then was twisted and shattered and also their identity. And we talked about this, and if you could put that definition up, that'd be great. It moved us into expressive individualism, which holds that human beings 
are defined by their individual psychological core and that the purpose of life is allowing that core to find social expression in relationships. Anything that challenges it is deemed oppressive. And so there's this idea now out of the fall that we're the God of our own lives. And so what becomes real for us is the way we feel, the things that we desire, and it's those things that we're going to pursue. Uh, And they have no restraints because it's all about how I feel and what's going on in my life. And if somebody disagrees with me, well, basically, I challenge them, or in our day and age, we cancel them. Uh, So we sort of see that going forward. Now, what was going to happen then in this shattered world as this individualism was going forward where, as I basically said in the sermon that I did, is that really what it was was the end of Judges, that everybody is doing what's right in their own eyes. That's sort of where we're at in our culture today. Everybody is doing right what's in their own eyes. The reality of that, though, is there's great brokenness, uh, destruction in relationships, there's abuse, and we can go through the list just due to 24-7 news cycle, and you're going to see that. So where is the human race at? Well, the human race is at a place where it can't help itself. It needs to be helped. And God loves the human race so much. If you could put the chart back up, that'd be great. That's where redemption comes in. He sends the promised Messiah, the rescuer, the restorer, the one who's going to bring a new relationship, who's going to purchase it with his blood, who's going to live a perfect life of his human, but then he's going to go to a cross, put on the cross, And on the cross will suffer all the wrath for our rebellion. And in that suffering, what's going to happen is he's going to make a way for us to be reconciled to God. With his blood, he has purchased forgiveness for our rebellion in our hearts. And as a result of that, when we come and believe in this, we are born again. We are given a new heart. We become a new creation. We have the Holy Spirit in us. And as a reality of that is, we can now step back out and we can begin to live as we were intended to live before the fall. And and that's sort of the the idea of where we're at as those who are believers in this world today. So we can see that what's happened is over thousands of years with expressive individualism, uh, I said this, that it's like playing the game whispered down the lane, God's narrative has gotten whispered down the lane of generation to generation, and his narrative has been twisted and distorted, and we see that in all the things that we're encountering in our world today, and in particular, as we're talking about, as we encounter sexuality in today's world. And these are the things I know the youth have been talking about, and we're going to be talking about more. And uh, if you could put that uh, Philip Yancey uh, quote up. If humanity serves as your religion, then sex becomes an act of worship. On the other hand, if God is the object of your religion, then romantic love becomes an unmistakable pointer of transcendence as loud as any we hear on earth. And so here's the difference. You have creature worshiping creature, which is making myself God, which means I want things desires fulfilled. I want to have a sense of being loved and satisfied. So sex becomes an act of worship where I am being edified, where my needs are being met. Versus God is the creator. He has a narrative and a design for the way things are supposed to go. And it actually points to something even greater than a relationship that we have. It points to union with Christ, that we become the bride of Christ. And that when 
all this is gone, when the new heavens and the new earth are there, we as the bride of Christ are going to live in union with him forever and ever in an amazing new heavens and new earth. That's the idea. That's what we've been talking about. That's the narrative of God. And so last week, Josh moved into this a little bit by uh, looking at 1 Corinthians 6, 17 to 20 as we talk about sexual immorality. Um, so let me just read 1 Corinthians 6, 17 to 20 for you. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And as Josh explained to us last week, we belong to the Lord. And just like we have appetites for food to satisfy us, we use our sexual desires to satisfy desires that are only meant for marriage with sexuality. And that's called sexual immorality. And it produces more brokenness, alienation. And one of the things that we see here is that as we are now in Christ, the Holy Spirit in us, our bodies are now temples of the living God. And as a result, what he's doing is he's restoring, as Josh said last week, humanity to itself, that our bodies would honor God in the way that they were supposed to. And rather than consuming others in our desire to be loved and to be satisfied, rather than satisfying ourselves as consumers and making sex a consumer good, where we seek to consume peoples for our own desires, it's completely reversed, and now we give to others and we don't consume them. We live out of the union we have with Christ. And Josh ended last week by saying, we practice this in community. We practice it with one another, and we practice it in our relationships with others. And that's where we're going today. And the only way we can do this is to live with a mind and eyes that reflect what Jesus thinks and sees. And that's how we're going to go today as we move into this. So we're going to be looking at, first, the mind of Christ. I'm going to be looking at Philippians 2, 1 through 8. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So here's what we see here. The mind of Christ. We see characteristics, values, and principles. They're sort of right here. So there's this idea that Jesus came, and one of the great qualities that he brought and that we now have in Christ is humility, the ability to value others above ourselves, 
not looking only to our own interests, but to the interests of others. Now, having said that, how does that sit with you? It doesn't feel right. It's impossible. How could I think about others more than I think about myself? How could I look at some other's interest rather than my own? Oh, maybe if I'm doing well, I can do it. But this is a value and a principle, and we see it here. And and when you think about it, what he's doing is he's presenting a contrast between the first Adam and the second Adam, who is Jesus. The first Adam wants to be like God. That was the sin. The second Adam, Jesus, was God, and he did not cling to his deity as a right. Instead, he made himself nothing, which means he emptied himself of his glory and divine privileges. Remember, he was omnipotent. He was omniscient. He was omnipresent. And in doing this, he took the very nature of a servant. And then he began practicing this in community, right? And we can go through a list of things, but a couple of things that that stand out where we see him serving is he washed the disciples' feet, modeling before them what it was to be a servant. He was obedient to death, all right? Because he was God and man, he was not going to die because he did not suffer the wages of sin, which is death, because he did not sin. And yet he became obedient to death. What? How amazing is that? All of us want to run from death. But he was obedient to death. He emptied himself and even obedient to death because he had something that was there for him. It was the joy set before him that he would even experience that shame, the shame of the cross. How amazing is that? And so it says, he who was rich became poor that we who were poor could become rich. So you might ask the question, what about rights? What about our entitlement mentality? What about our party spirit? What about selfish ambition? Or what other weapons of self-centeredness we have in our arsenal? They're not the attitudes and actions of someone who's been born again, of someone who is in union with Christ, who someone's a citizen of heaven, of someone who is a chosen, adopted child of God. So that's why Spurgeon says this, and let me just read the quote. Our text is the epitome of Jesus' biography. He humbled himself. On earth, he was always stripping off one robe of honor and then another until finally naked. He was fastened to the cross. There he emptied his innermost self, pouring out his lifeblood for all. Pride cannot live beneath the cross. Let us sit there and learn, then rise and put our lesson into practice. And today what I want to do is I want us to see Jesus in action with people. How did Jesus practice this as he was living on the earth, as he was in relationship with people? So we're going to look at three moments in Jesus' life. Josh already prayed out of another moment, which is the woman caught in adultery. And we can go through a list of all these, but I'm just going to take three uh, just to draw out some of the things in seeing with the eyes of Jesus. So the first one is a Samaritan woman. This is a story in John 4. He was leaving Judea, and he was traveling to Galilee. And rather than taking the road that avoided Samaria, 
um, because Samaritans and the Jewish people were enemies. They would always avoid that road. Jesus did not. He went down that road. So he entered into what we would call enemy territory, uh, so to speak, people who did not think the way he did, people whose theology was radically different than his theology, people who they would consider enemies. He decided to just go through this area, and then it's, it's in the heat, heat of the day, it's noon, and he sends his disciples off in town to get some food, and he's sitting at the well, and he's thirsty, but he doesn't have anything to, to draw water with. And a woman comes walking up in the heat of the day to draw water, and he begins a conversation with her. Now, you got to understand how radical this is. Men do not talk to women in that culture, especially in a situation where he is alone and she is alone, where she's a Samaritan and he is a Jew. Like, all kinds of barriers are being broken down here, right? And he begins a conversation with her. And she begins asking questions and they go back and forth. Uh, and then he begins to point out her reality to her, right? Well, she's been married five times. At the moment, she's not married or living with the man. The reason she's coming to the well during the hottest time of the day is that none of the other women in the village want to associate with her. She's been rejected. She's been judged as an adulterer. She's now an outcast, and she's all alone. And it tells us that after Jesus had spoken to her, their eyes met. What does Jesus see? He sees a bottomless ache. Her soul is empty. He sees her past with tenderness. He makes no reference to her sin, no call to repent, no plan of salvation, but enters into her world, listens to her, treats her with dignity and compassion, and offers her living water. We know from the rest of the story that she was changed by that. She realized that he was the Savior. She went into town and told everybody about it, and they all came out. It was an amazing event. The second moment we want to look at is Zacchaeus. Jesus is getting ready to visit and walk through Jericho, and of course, at this point in his ministry, he has crowds with him all the time. All kinds of things are happening. It's like, it's like an ongoing carnival because they never know what Jesus is going to do, and all, everybody wants to be with him. He's performing miracles. He's teaching amazing things. This large crowd's going into Jericho. The news gets out that Jesus is going to be passing through Jericho. Everybody in the town wants to see him. It's going to be like a parade route for him, right? And here's this man, Zacchaeus. And uh, Scripture tells us that Zacchaeus was a small man. He wasn't going to be able to see over the crowd. And so Zacchaeus, thinking ahead, says, I'm going to go and I'm going to go on a tree so I can see this Jesus when he comes by. Now, here's the thing. I, I don't know about you, but I sort of read into that. He was very short. And it doesn't take much to imagine that as a kid he was made fun of. The reason it doesn't is because I was pretty short as a kid. And I know I was made fun of. And he was bullied, I would assume, when he was a kid. And now he is the chief tax collector, king of the hill. 
He has money. He has power. But what has it accomplished in his life? He is despised. He's considered a traitor. He has no friends. He is alone, and his soul is empty, looking to be loved. Jesus stops, and with his eyes of love, calls Zacchaeus. I want to eat dinner at your house tonight. What? 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 This is. I want to eat dinner at your house tonight, Zacchaeus. That's right, you. Get down from that tree. And what has happened? He wants to share a meal, which is a sign of acceptance and friendship in that culture. You don't eat a meal with a stranger unless it's hospitality, inviting them in and accepting them. So this eating a meal is huge in that culture. This is a sign of friendship, of acceptance. Now, Zacchaeus has never felt this before in his life. And what do we see happen? Zacchaeus' heart is changed by love. It tells us that he, he, he basically repaid all the money he owed, and then he actually gave it back four times more to other people. And his life was radically changed. In the last moment, let's look at a leper. And Sherry did a wonderful job of reading that story and presenting it to us today. Here's a man with leprosy. Um, there was rules about lepers, right? Uh, because of who they were, they had to dress as if they were mourning their own life, as mourners. And wherever they went, they had to yell out, unclean, unclean, so nobody would be around them. And children used to run from them, and people would hide from them. And so his life was full of shame and guilt. As Sherry said, they lived in a cave without love, hope, no dignity, isolated, lonely. How long has it been? since he felt the touch of a human hand. And he dares to approach Jesus in the crowd. The crowd splits down the middle. You can just see everybody just splitting like the Red Sea. Leper, leper, unclean, unclean. Everybody. And he walks to Jesus. And what does Jesus see? He sees the shame. He sees the sores. He sees the emptiness and a glimmer of faith. And he reaches out and he touches the leper. Now, he could have, from a distance, said, you're healed. But he wanted to show the leper that he cared and that he had dignity. And he touches the leper and immediately restores him to health, restores his dignity. He shows him love. And, of course, the leper can't stop talking about it. I can't blame the leper, can you? I don't think I would have stopped talking about it either. But here's moments, and we can go through the rest. As as Josh talked about the woman in adultery, um, we can talk about the centurion. We can talk about so many different people that Jesus encountered where he loved them and he showed them love even though he knew their perspective was different than his that they were probably sinning in their own lives even as they met with him. It says that he met with sinners, and he, he, this is Jesus, but he's pursuing people. And so let's take a snippet from Matthew 9, 35 to 38, and let this move us into seeing with Jesus' eyes, okay? I'm taking this out of the message. Then Jesus made a circuit of all the towns and villages, 
He taught in their meeting places, reported kingdom news, and healed their diseased bodies, healed their bruised and hurt lives. And when he looked out over the crowds, his heart broke. So confused and aimless they were, like sheep with no shepherd. What a huge harvest, he said to his disciples. How few workers on your knees and pray for harvest hands. You see, what did Jesus see when he looked out? He saw people confused and aimless, harassed and harried is another way to say it. I think about when he came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the the great time of triumph, the triumphal entry, and yet when he came in, he looked over Jerusalem and he wept. He wept over their not accepting the peace that he was offering, that they rejected this, they rejected him, and he saw them as lost and blind. There was no anger in his heart. There was no sense of judging these people. There was just a love that wanted to see them know the peace that was offered. So we don't see Jesus judge. He doesn't make sure his worldview is different than theirs. He accepts them as they are. He gives them dignity and respect. He listens to them. He shares a conversation and a meal. He's kind to them. Jesus doesn't lead with law. He leads with love. I guess it's really important. He doesn't lead with law. He leads with love. And here's the thing. We are those workers sent out as Jesus was sent out. I think a lot of times this is read just as something for missionaries. It's true about missionaries, but it's also we are those who go out into the harvest. Our harvest is all our relationships that we are in, wherever we're at, whether it's work or school or family or friends. Our harvest are the people that we're in relationship with, and he is calling us to be out there with people. And as you begin to see this picture and these principles rise up, I'm going to read And I want you to take in what this is really saying, because this is an expression of seeing with Jesus' eyes. I'm going to read out of Romans chapter 12, verses 14 to 21. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I'd encourage you to just start praying through this particular verse, verses. And at the same time, be saying, Jesus, 
Let me see people with your eyes. Because this is sort of where we're at in our culture right now, right? So here's the question that's before us, all of us. How should divine image bearers plugged into a lifeline of undeserved favor treat a human being that's different than me? I'm going to say it again. How should divine image bearers plugged into a lifeline of undeserved favor? That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's what Jesus has done for us. We receive grace. It's undeserved favor. God has come, pursued us in love, led us to a place where we would see his forgiveness. Come, bring our hearts to him. No forgiveness, no a new heart, no the Holy Spirit, no a new way of life that we can be a part of. How then do we treat human beings who are different than us? Human beings who have a different worldview on sexuality. Human beings who are different racially than we are, ethnically than we are, economically different than we are, educationally different than we are. We can keep going on. One of the great principles of this is don't judge, trust God. Don't judge, trust God. I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, you know, I became a Christian, um, and, and by God's grace, the moment I became a Christian, he took away my desire to do drugs. From the very moment, I was doing drugs for years. The moment I became a Christian, he took away my desire to do drugs. And here's what I did with that. When other people who would tell me that they're Christians and they were still struggling with drugs, I would judge them. And I would think, there's no way they're saved. There's no way they're saved. And I would look at them and say, they're just liars. And then God spoke to me. And he said, so let me get this right. There's other sins in your life that you're struggling with right now that you had when you came to the Lord, but that's okay. You can struggle with them. But if somebody struggles with drugs saying that they know me, they can't be Christians. And I was laid low. I was laid low. And we have to watch the way we think and we judge and we look at people. We would judge people for one particular sin and yet for materialism, we think it's great. How does that happen? So this is where he's going. We see with the eyes of Jesus. Fear. Living in fear of the influence of whatever the culture is bringing. Certainly when we have children, we can, we can be overwhelmed with fear, but even for ourselves and what's going on, fear for the way the culture is going. Fear, 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 fear. But here's the Bible. Do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear. God is with you. God's in control. He's on the throne. His plan's going to be worked out. What? 
What do we do with our fear? Do we remove ourselves from people? Or do we trust God? Are we willing to step in? Am I willing to have relationship? What does that look like? Well, Lord, you need to help me with that, but I'm willing to step. His strongest words are for the Pharisees. Why? Because the Pharisees thought themselves righteous. Because the Pharisees judged everybody. They had rules for everybody. Because they decided that they had the scripture and they had it down to a particular set of laws. And if people walked outside of that, they were righteous and had to come and tell them what they were doing wrong. Well, of course, they were sinning themselves. His strongest words were for the people who were judging, who were standing righteous. And I think we have to be careful, brothers and sisters, in our world today. And, 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 and this is one of the reasons why. I hate the, these two words, culture war. I hate them. Those words speak war. That's what they speak. They speak as if we're at war with everybody. They, they produce enemies. Those words have to produce an enemy. Because if you're at war with somebody, you have to have an enemy. Here's the words I believe are scriptural. Love offensive. Love offensive. God and Jesus and his people are on a love offensive. That's what we're about. Love moves. Love enters in. Love changes people. The love of God changes us. The love of God brought Jesus to be the Savior for us. There is the love of God, and we are on a love offensive. That's why the scripture tells us this. That's why we have the mind of Christ. That's why we see Christ entering into people's lives. Does that mean we don't speak the truth in love? No, it doesn't mean that. But when do I speak the truth in love? When's the last time you walked to somebody on the corner of a street and said, if you believe that, there's something wrong with you, you're a sinner, repent. That gets you somewhere, right? Might get you shot. But what's it like when you've had a relationship with someone? Like my father-in-law with me. And you're building a relationship. You're not in that relationship with them to be that person who's going to set them right. You're in a relationship with them because you love them as a person. God has called us to step into people's lives, to love with his love. And when is the last time you intentionally ask God to help you love somebody, whether it's in your work network or your neighborhood network or your school network, to love somebody that's different than you? And to just step into their lives. When I, when I became a Christian, I was working in the restaurant business, and of course I had been a part of that subculture for years. Now here I was, and I had a whole different set of values. But I had my father-in-law, who was my spiritual father at that point, encouraging me, 
You need to be in relationship with them. So if you're in, have ever been in the restaurant business, you sit down, you have coffee, you eat a meal, whatever it might be. You start talking to one another. You see what's going on. So here's how I can love you. When they, when they talk about their lives, I say, you know what? I'm going to pray about that for you. Would you would, is it okay if I pray about that? Sure. And then I come back a week later and say, how's things going? I've been praying for you. And then they would answer me and say, I can't believe it, you know? This happened or that happened or whatever it is. And in the context of just that simple type of relationship, we got to know one another. And then I have people begin asking me, well, what are you doing in your life? Well, I'm becoming a pastor. Oh, really? Wow, a pastor? That's a little strange for somebody. Yeah, but what did it do? It led to a Bible study. What do those things? We need to be willing to be in people's lives and trust God. You see, God didn't say to us, you're the Holy Spirit. God said to us, you're the people who sent out like Jesus. You step into people's lives with love. The Holy Spirit does the work of changing hearts, of convicting hearts. And that's why, and I'll end with this, because I can keep going on, but, but the reality of this is, is that that's why for us as a congregation, we're talking about having courageous conversations and things of that nature. Um, Here's the thing. Everybody wants something in black and white, but these situations are not black and white. Every individual has their own personality. They have their own way of looking at life, their own experiences they come into life with. That These are the things that are going on. So there's layers of complexity. When you get to know somebody, there's layers and layers as you get to know these people. And in each individual's life, there's layers of complexity that have led them to do the things that they are doing. And so as a result, loving them means that we have to step in to the complexity and be able to get to know them and let the scripture then guide our hearts through prayer as we step into people's lives without judgment, without fear, but by loving them in the same way that Jesus would, accepting them, giving them dignity, and loving them. So what we've done, and this is where we're going, we have building blocks. We have the principles that we've talked about, brothers and sisters. They're there. No one's taking them away. But the question for us now is, how do we answer the questions pertaining, in particular as we're talking about sexuality in our culture, how do we begin answering those questions when it's individuals that we're stepping into their lives? And that's what we're going to be heading towards. So we're asking you, you have questions out of this series. Oh, we have a, uh, what do they call QR code up there, Josh? QR code up there where you can actually send us your questions. You can certainly email Josh and I with your questions. If you want to make it anonymous, you know, just put it in an index card and put it in the offering box and we'll get it. But we want to move now, having laid down these principles, to having some small group meetings in a couple weeks where you have questions out of this, these principles. Let's discuss them together. Let's discuss them together. Let's help one another out. Let's be iron sharpening iron in this context. We all have many questions. But we have to work out of the truth. And we have to see people the way Jesus sees people. And then we begin answering questions out of that together. That's our hope. That's our goal. That's where we're moving forward to. So I want to end by just asking the Holy Spirit to bless us all with his fruit. Because this fruit is all about relationships.
Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. That's his fruit. We step into relationships with that fruit. Let me just pray that for us. Father, we come to you this morning, Lord, and um, the things that we're hearing from your word, Lord, they, they challenge us. They, they shake us to a place where we know that many of these things are the way we're supposed to move. Many of these values and principles we understand. But Lord, stepping into our world with these and stepping into hard situations and stepping out of fear with these and not judging, Lord, we struggle. And so we're asking you to help us, Lord. We're asking you to guide our steps. We're asking, Lord, that we would see people with Jesus' eyes in new ways, wherever we're at, Lord, however different they are than us. Even if they're our enemy, you tell us to love our enemy as you loved us when we were your enemy. So, Lord, there's no escaping this call, but there's also the power of the Spirit in us that we can live this way, that we can be people who reflect you and your love to people who are struggling, people who are broken, people who are, as it says in your word, confused and harassed and distressed, Lord, work in us. Give us an inclination through the Spirit to want to be people who are out there seeing Jesus, seeing people the way you do yourself, Lord. So I pray now for you, Holy Spirit, to give us your fruit. For each person here, you will give us love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control in all of our relationships. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Uh, thank you, Pastor, for, for this message. Uh, and it truly is a challenge to uh, see the world through the eyes of Jesus. Um, if you read the scripture, every encounter with Jesus is life-changing, as we saw today. Um, the story of sins forgiven and given new life, of redemption and restoration, and this continues to be today. Um, we're going to sing a new song, a relatively new song, called Death Was Arrested. And, and I hope the, the words ring true in your life.